In 2 Peter, Peter opens the book by saying that he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says that he's writing to those who through the righteousness of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Christianity is a faith that we receive. It isn't something that we get to make up. And this makes the ancient creeds of the church important because creeds are a kind of lens that helps us to focus on what is the what the earliest Christ followers, Jesus followers, actually attended to. The, that first generation of believers in Christ, they knew that something was new, that a new creation was afoot. Right? A new arrangement had been made between human beings and God as a result of this incarnation of God becoming human in Jesus. But it left lots of questions that needed definition. What is this all about, this new faith? What changed between the former covenant and this new covenant? Um, what were Christians to believe? Uh, how should the church measure the opinions that were emerging about this new agreement, about this New Testament. The church needed clarity. The Apostles' Creed helps to inform that, those questions. Uh, we began to unpack the Creed about 10 weeks ago, and Lord willing, and with the rejoicing of the people, we will finish it today. <laughs> so let's, let's begin. I just had you sit it, but let's begin. We usually say the Creed at the end, but let's stand up and say it together because we're going to finish it today. Let's say it together. They can find that. Let's declare. This is the faith we have received. So, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting Amen. Go ahead and be seated. This is what we believe. The creed gives us the arc of the story that we are defined by as the people of God. The creed speaks of a past, of a God who created. It speaks of a Jesus as the one who came to this place to address the matters of salvation and the means of salvation. The creed speaks to the present that how Jesus has been risen, that he's seated at the right hand of God, that he's listening and interceding for us now, in this moment, at this time in history. It speaks of the Holy Spirit who continues to be active in the world. There is now the presence of Christ's prophetic voice through a people who have been called 
the set-apart ones, the ecclesia, called the church. It speaks of now, the forgiveness of sins for all the ways in which we demonstrate unfaithfulness and how that forgiveness is always available to us. And as the New Testament teaches, God is more faithful to forgive than we are faithful to be unfaithful. And then the creed speaks of a future. Jesus is coming back and that he's going to judge stuff as right and wrong in the future. And it speaks to the future in our last two stanzas, last two sentences. There will be a resurrection of the dead and a kind of life that is different than the one we live now. It's the life of the world to come. So the past, the present, the future, all expressed in this creed, it is our story. Now today we look at these last two phrases. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Here the creed shifts to a different kind of hope. It's not just a hope about God or about what God is doing. It's a hope about us and about our future. That there's going to be a resurrection out of death for us. And that we're going to be resurrected into a life that is to come, that's ours. <laughs> These two phrases are tied together. I mean, the creed is saying that we're anticipating being raised out of death because we're going to be entering a new kind of world, a new kind of life. And these claims carry not just a sense of belief, it certainly carries belief, but a sense of deep anticipation. And that's why the Nicene Creed restates it as, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come. Embedded in it is this palpable expectation that death will be overcome and that life is more than what we taste day in, day out. Right? Something more is coming. So let's first talk about the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ carried an absolute commitment to the idea that there will be a resurrection of the dead. He says in John 11, he's speaking to Martha here, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Jesus chides this group of people, the Sadducees, for their refusal to believe in, the re in a resurrection. In John, Jesus claims, this is John 5, I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Jesus says, there's a resurrection of the dead. The New Testament followers, the new followers of Jesus were so deeply committed to this idea of resurrection that it literally cast and formed how they made decisions 
about their current living in this world. We read it in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul like steps up on this. You can feel it in the text. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Useless. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified that God raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, from the dead, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. He's pointing to the fact that those that have lived their lives as though there's something more and have maybe died because of their confession of Christ, who have now died, have died for nothing. which means the idea of the future. Help them surrender their lives in the now. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says, we are to be pitied more than all people. Hmm. This resurrection thing, physical resurrection after death, is a big deal in the New Testament. Why? Let me explain a term first so you can maybe get a clearer grasp of why. The term is theodicy, theodicy. It, it, theodicy is the explanation or the justification for how a perfectly good, almighty, and all-knowing God permits bad things, evil things. The term literally means justifying God. Resurrection is important because in resurrection, the physical resurrection of all, God addresses all unresolved evils and gives another chance for those who have been victims of evil to realize dreams lost, to live unlived lives, and to realize unrealized hopes. <laughs> the resurrection of the dead proves justice will not be denied only delayed. It proves that the reward for faithfulness may not be given during one's lifetime, but it will be given. Resurrection means that all the messiness of an evil world does not have to be resolved while evil is still dominating the world. That the God who lives outside of time is just and will make will put all wrongs to right. Snap thought shot of this is in Revelation 21. Then I saw, John writes, a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth, they're gone. They passed away. There's no longer any sea. Some people, that's a drag. I like the sea. It's, this, is a, this is a nod to the Old Testament understanding of the sea being the unfathomable depths of evil. He's saying... In this world, no more evil. No more hatred. No more murder. No more senseless violence. No more abuse. 
He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, at last, the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there with them and be their God. And he, God, will wipe away every tear. So much of our lives are lived in regret. So much of our lives are lived in loss, whether from illness or from brokenness or from abuse. And for most of our lives, we have this veil of tears. But there will be a day when there will be no more tears. <laughs> and the tears will be gone for as There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Because that old order of things in that life we used to live, in this life that is to come, that is now here, described, things are new. The new creation that began when those of us come to Christ, we become new creatures. It starts like the daffodils in February here. Shows you that there's spring coming, even though there's a good bit of winter left. So here in this world, in this veil of tears, we're the daffodil people. We have appearances of God, but it ain't fully here. Spring ain't here yet. Well, one day spring will be fully here. The first explicit reference we find to resurrection and the promise of a life after death was in the ancient Jewish deuterocanonical writings. These are writings that didn't make it into the full canon for the church, or many in the church, in the book of Maccabees. And it's the story of a Jewish woman who has seven sons. And these seven sons have been ordered by King Antiochus the fourth to directly disobey Jewish law while they're in the temple. They were asked to do something heinous, something sacrilegious in the temple. And they refuse. And as they refuse, Antiochus slaughters them mercilessly right in front of their mother, from the eldest to the youngest of the seven sons. And as the young men step up to declare their refusal to obey the king, they declare why what the reasoning is. And they say, this is out of Maccabees, 2 Maccabees 7.9. They say, quote, you, king, are depriving us of this present life. But the king of this world will raise us up to live again forever. <laughs> and the Maccabean mother says, just before the murders began, quote, I do not know how you, talking to her children, came into existence in my womb. It was not I who gave you the breath of life. Nor was it I who set in order the elements of which each of you is composed. Therefore, since it is the creator of the universe who shapes each man's beginning as he brings about the origin of everything, he, in his mercy, will give you back both breath and life because you, are now, because you now disregard yourselves for the sake of his law. End quote. You see the tone of that? They were able to face death because they knew there was something more. They're able to not love this life more than the life to come. Somehow this notion 
of looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life to come is the reason why martyrs could be martyrs, is the reason why sacrificing people could sacrifice. Because their life is not just of this world. Again, the resurrection of the dead means justice will not be denied, maybe just delayed. It means that the reward for faithfulness may not be given now, but it will be given. The presence of evil in the world is the strongest argument, strongest reason that pushes against faith. Some people call it the rock of atheism, the fact that evil exists. If one claims God exists and that he is good, it doesn't make sense why he would allow evil, why he would allow suffering. There's a logical disconnect to such a, to such a claim. How could God be good and powerful and not stop those babies who were two years and younger in Nazareth after Jesus came to the earth as they're slaughtered right after Jesus comes? Why not stop crimes like murder or rape or incest or abuse? Why is there cancer that ravages even children, babies, or Alzheimer's or debilitating painful diseases like fibromyalgia? Or think of the horror of recent history. World War I, within the first 18 months, 18 million men, women, and children lay dead in Europe. 18 million. World War II, 6 million Jews, some 70 million men, women, and children lie dead across the world. 70 million. Here's a horror sampler from that time when an Italian journalist was visiting Ante Pavlik, the pro-Nazi leader of Croatia. Pavlik excitedly showed him this basket, full, big old basket, full of what looked like oysters. And then he boasted that it was a gift from his troops, 40 pounds of human eyes. What are the mass shootings in America? Why weren't those horrific actions thwarted? Those 20 little kids and six adults at Sandy Hook, the 68 people in Las Vegas Harvest Music Festival, the 28 killed in El Paso just a few weeks ago. If these kinds of evils are not all prevented in this life, how will justice ever be done? I mean, retributive justice is appropriate where you hold people accountable for that perpetuate evil. I mean, that's a kind of justice, but it's not enough. In God, the answer, although some don't believe it, is resurrection. Resurrection promises a redo. It gives those who were victims of evil another chance, a chance to realize their lost dreams, to live their unlived lives and to actualize their unrealized hopes. This hope, it doesn't eliminate the grieving over loss. I mean, anytime you lose someone or that's dear to you or hear a tragedy that occurs, there's sorrow upon sorrow. But there's something about resurrection that seems to recast grief in a little 
in a different way for those who have faith. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him or died in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have died, fall asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with the Lord forever and watch. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Something about resurrection mitigates the sorrow that's true sorrow and brings hope. The book of Revelation sees the resurrection of the dead as the evidence of God's ultimate triumph over evil. The last enemy to be put under God's feet is death. According to the creed, the resurrection of the dead leads smack into the life of the world to come. <laughs> this anticipation prophetically snubs the notion that our life is in this world. That's why texts like Philippians 3 says, our citizenship isn't just here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're already connected, and someday we're to anticipate that there's a life beyond this one and that we're to not love this life so much. Love not the world, John says. Why? Because we've got something more. Right? Being faithful to God embraces this. Hebrews 11 that talks about the people of faith. It says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted, watch this, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. Do we admit that? If we believe in the resurrection of the dead and of the life of the world to come, we'll be more oriented to say, you know what? I'm not just of this world. I don't have to save every penny. I can dare to give, I can dare to surrender, I can dare to engage and lose sometimes because I'm an alien and a stranger. People say such things because they're looking for a different country. Or not, or, excuse me, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, talking about where they had been, these people are daddy's talking about, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. That's our story. We have a city coming that's more than this. Living in anticipation of another life is what makes sense of martyrdom. Martyrs believe this life wasn't their only shot at life. This is why it makes sense why people sacrifice for the kingdom of God or sacrifice for others or trying to help others because they know this isn't the only thing we have. Here's just a fairly recent sample from the thousands that come to us from the church's history books. In 1878, 140 years ago, that's not that long ago, Gail's dad lived to 90. I'm, if we stack him and me, we're at 150 years. That's not that long ago, right? Just not that long ago. In the city of Memphis, the, right by the Mississippi River, they were struck with yellow fever. 
And it killed so many people in that city that it lost its charter, and they weren't able to get enough people to reorganize into a city for 14 years after that. It killed all kinds of people. Almost everyone who could afford to do so left the city and uh, tried to get to higher ground away from the river. I mean, they certainly didn't know the disease was mosquito-borne that hadn't been discovered yet. But people noticed that if they got away to high and dry places, that they were safe. So everybody's fleeing. There were several communities of nuns, devoted monastic women uh, in Memphis. There were Anglican, Roman Catholic uh, groups who had the opportunity to leave, but they stayed to nurse the sick. Most of them, 38 in all, were killed by the fever. One of the first to die, which was just celebrated September 9th, a week ago, this week, was Mother Constance, who was the head of an Anglican community of St. Mary. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Young lives, praying every day. Wouldn't it be better for them to leave so they can keep praying for the world? Why would they dare to do that? See, at the core of making decisions like this is the notion that we have life beyond this world. That we don't have to cling to what we have here. It's also the reason why we would do something as silly as tithing or giving to the poor. We don't have to experience all of life here. Our obedience and our sacrifice impact the life we live there. So we live differently here. Okay, I got to quiet. We don't know much about the world to come, really. I mean, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. We, we are confident that it is not a world of clouds where we sit and play harps. We are reasonably certain it's on this planet. Revelation 21 says new heaven, new earth here. Pretty reasonable that. We do know that the biblical claim is that we'll have bodies, physical bodies like Jesus, after his resurrection. What the? How cool is that idea? I mean, right, listen, this is Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven, just read that. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious, after resurrection, glorious body. Hot dog. I mean, we will have a resurrected body that's somewhat like Jesus' body. I mean, his body, you know, was physical. He could touch, feel, communicate, eat, and his body had special powers. He could appear and disappear. Uh, he could pass through walls. He seemed to be able to move at the speed of thought. He apparently could eat without getting fat. That's my anticipated superpower. <laughs> with my new body, you'll just see me always with a donut and a Coke. No more diabetes for me. <laughs> okay, so let me just make two general assertions about the creed as we close this thing off, this series. One, I think the church needs a clear and communal sense of identity, and that's why we need a creed. Here's where we answer, what does it mean to be a Christian? And then secondly, it invites us as believers into reflection about what's essential to the Christian life and what's just preference. The creed is notoriously generous in its orthodoxy. 
I mean, it tells us that God created the seen and the unseen, but it doesn't tell us or insist on how. I mean, if you believe in a literal seven-day creation, fine. If you believe in billions and billions and billions of years through some evolutionary process, fine. The question isn't how. The question is who. All the creed demands is God did whatever was did. The creed also says Jesus is coming back. But it doesn't speak about a rapture, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. You can advocate whatever you want to advocate for. Stack up as many Bible verses as you want to and fight as much as you want to. But you don't leave your brothers and sisters over it and start a new denomination. Creed won't let you do that. It just says he's coming back. How sweet is that? It mentions the Holy Spirit and salvation without defining it too much. So what's the point? What does that mean? We have room to be different and still be together. It means we have room to explore and to wonder, to ask new questions, to embrace different views without being ostracized by our fellow believers. And it means that we, have, can, we can have various opinions about things. Uh, as Christians, we can vote whatever political party we want to vote. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, for example, I have friends who believe pro-life only means being against abortion. I have other friends who believe medicine is a gift from God and that medical care is a human right and that saves many lives. So they see that as another version of pro-life and they vote for those who support that agenda. And then I have other friends who are, you know, pro-guns because they believe that it protects life. And still others who want guns banned because they feel that is being pro-life. And I have wonderful Christian friends who believe the planet is in danger. And that if we don't correct the way we engage with creation or the way we engage with the environment, that it will mean devastation of the planet and a great loss of life, another version of pro-life for them. If we surveyed this community here this morning, some of you would be advocates for tighter borders in the name of pro-life to protect our country. And others of you would want to be, have more open border policies in order to protect those fleeing out of horrific and dangerous situations from other countries because they are pro-life. What's the point? There's a lot of ways to talk about pro-life. And what the creed teaches us is that we can be, have unity without uniformity. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good here. It urges us to be open to be challenged to being open to hearing the other side of things and to stay loving even though that's true, through it all. And there you have it.